Hey gang, this is Max. Um, we are going through some scheduling rearrangements, shenanigans, uh, so we weren't able to get to Gunpowder Milkshake this week. That will be out next week. Uh, in the meantime, we will re-release our Masters of the Universe episode, uh, the film starring Dolph Lundgren, uh, in honor of the new Kevin Smith Masters of the Universe Revelation series, and we'll, we're going to do a, a few episodes on the new series as well next week, or the following week. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this uh, rebroadcast of the episode, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. So he really didn't want to direct a Masters of the Universe film. It appears not. There's a lot, to me, There, there's some stolen bases here. Like, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Max and Jason Watch a Movie. I'm Jason. And I'm Max. And today we will be covering Masters of the Universe from 1987, uh, the epic story of He-Man and his Masters of the Universe, directed by Gary Goddard, written by David Ordell. Stephen Tolkien and Gary Goddard are rewrite authors, but they're not credited in the, in the credit. Um, the film stars Dolph Lundgren as the uh, as the He-Man, Frank Langella as Skeletor, Meg Foster as Evil Lynn, Barty, uh, Billy Barty as Gwildor, Courtney Cox as Julie, Robert Duncan McNeil as Kevin, John Cipher as Man-at-Arms, Chelsea Fields as Tila, and James Tolkien as Detective Principal McFly Lubick. Actually, it's just Detective Lubick, but uh, anyway. Uh, in lesser roles, uh, Christina Pickles is the sorceress of Castle Grayskull. Tony Carroll is Beastman. Nothing like the character from the from the cartoon. Pons Mar, this is the actor's real name, is Sarad. Uh, not a character that was ever in any of the shows. Anthony DeLongis as Blade. And Robert Towers as Karg. Also another character that never, ever was in the cartoon or was a figure. A couple of those. Yeah, yeah. So let me let me let me let me give you some of the parentheticals I have for my uh, for my after each character. I, Billy Barty is a, a dwarf who plays the character Gwildor. My parenthetical for that character is who the fuck <laughs> Gwildor is not uh, is another character that's not uh, uh, canonical to He Man. And then Courtney Cox is Julie. My my question is why? And the same is true of Kevin Duncan McNeil as Kevin. I'm sorry, Robert Duncan McNeil who plays Kevin is why. And I'll get to that in a minute, but. <laughs> These kinds of questions are going to pop up a lot. So how did we get to the point where we needed to make a Masters of the Universe movie in 1987? Well, I, I guess I want to take it to the toy line, right? Yes. Um, in 1982, a group of enterprising and ambitious toy makers were trying to come up with a way to uh, get break into the male action figure market. If you've seen the episode of uh, The Toys That Made Us, the He-Man episode, uh, they cover a lot more of this ground than I'm going to cover uh, here. Uh, and so I recommend that you watch that episode uh, of The Toys That Made Us, especially if you're interested in this podcast or interested in He-Man. But they realized basically because of the big toy distributors that you needed a story to sell figures. Star Wars had movies that they were pumping out. Uh, well, not pumping out, but but we're in the mental landscape of the culture, so that helps sell figures. G.I. Joe had a cartoon uh, and a comic book. This was the way in which these these toy makers also pitched their, their uh, figures. Uh, these figures were amazing in that they were different from everything else on the market. Everything else was three and a half inch figures, uh, and they were kind of, you know, they were all kind of linear. These He-Man figures were like five and a half inch and they were big, muscular, and in action poses. They caught the imagination and the neat thing about this is, is that they came up with this idea to make a movie, a, a series of cartoons to sell their show, to sell I'm so, sorry, to sell their toys after first having comic books in each of the toy packages. They wanted to create a narrative so that kids could have an idea of how to 
play with these toys to have a story so they didn't have to like come up with it on their own to do this they they did comic books and they did a cartoon and the cartoon seems to have been the narrative that won out in the popular culture it created a pretty coherent cosmology a pretty coherent set of world building a pretty coherent set of rules for Eternia where all of the action takes place in He-Man you have Skeletor the bad guy and his henchmen you have He-Man and his friends Man-at-Arms Tila Orko in the cartoon uh, Stratos is another common character Buzz Off we may all remember there were a bunch of other characters. Ram Man Ram Man I think I seem to remember as a kid you really dug Ram Man I could be wrong about that well I owned it I I, I it was one I mean it was one of my first figures so yeah Gotcha, gotcha. And Skeletor had Beast Man. He had uh, Evil Lynn, uh, kind of the counterpart to Tila, and uh, Merman and Trapjaw were the kind of the main his main henchmen. Mer, uh, and, and so th- those are the main guys that everybody who watched the show in from '83 almost into '87. I mean, the show was going very strong into this time the toy was starting to kind of flag a little bit and i think that's one of the reasons why they thought well now's the time for a movie but anyway you have a great foundation for all of this for for a movie right you have characters that everybody loves you have a mythology that everyone knows about that everyone almost everybody knows who he-man is they know who prince adam is he-man's alter ego right they know everything they need to know they should have been able to hit the ground running right the script should have written itself yes which might have been better, by the way. It might have been better. It might have been better. Um, this, by the way, just as a, as a side note, the He-Man, the He-Man cartoon was the most successful animated series that Filmation ever made. So that leads us to Gary Goddard and uh, the director, I'm sorry, and the writer, David Ordell, who wrote Supergirl and The Dark Crystal. Yes, Instead of following this, they elected to to not use much of the this mythos that the toy makers had created, that the cartoon people had created, and they decided to do something completely different. There is no Orko, there is no Merman, there is none of Ske- almost none of Skeletor's Rogues Gallery makes it into the film, except for Evil Lynn and Beastman. And Beastman has no speaking role, right? And Evil Evil Lynn, we'll get to her in a bit. I like Meg Foster, so they didn't use any of that. He Man has no alter ego. We almost we only get I have the power, the most important phrase in He-Man once in the film, you know, and it makes no sense when he does it, which which, which we may get to. It may not even merit mentioning, but beyond what I've done. Is there anything you want to say about this so far? Well, I mean, I, I would second everything that you just said. I would I would add something. And this is more from my own uh, personal memories. You mentioned the the cartoon, mm-hmm. which actually everybody remembers. Everybody remembers Prince Adam and Orko and kind of making he-Man into a Superman figure in which uh, he's the prince and, you know, who's kind of mild-mannered and, um, but he changes into He-Man when the time comes to save the day. And just kind of sharing my own experience, when I first saw the cartoon, that disappointed me. Oh, yeah? Bitterly, as a collector of He-Man, I, I was, I, I got into the uh, into the toy very early. I believe it came out in 81. And I, I got it immediately. Because I was, I had been told about it that there's this man, He-Man, and he's got one half of a sword, and his enemy is Skeletor, and he's a, he's like a, he's like a skeleton, and he's got the other half of the sword. And then I was sold. I was like, I gotta get this toy. Yeah. I, I got the He-Man toy, and it came, as you said, the toy came with these little mini comic books. But um, the first four mini comics that were printed have a very different universe uh, or a very different kind of mythology than the cartoon. There's no Prince Adam, He-Man is is um, 
I'm just a member of this tribe, you know, and they kind of live by just kind of wearing uh, animal skins. But he's super strong and he goes out to save Eternia because Eternia is not in a very good shape. Uh, there was apparently this war long ago in the past in which most of the science uh, of of the culture was lost. And now uh, magic, there's kind of this blend of magic and science. And uh, He-Man is kind of chosen and he's given these weapons to protect the secrets of Castle Grayskull from this mysterious creature Skeletor. The story is very simple. And when I was a child, I mean, God, I would have been eight. This really captured my imagination. Like, Mine too. This story was really something that I was really into. I, I was a big fan of the cartoon and I watched it religiously. However, I never really got over my disappointment that the He-Man mythology departed from that original story. And by the way, these uh, these mini-comics are available online. You can find them. You can read them online for free. They're not difficult to find. And actually, you can read all of them. Like, they're, they're all available. I always wanted the cartoon to follow up on some of that mythology. You're quite right that the mythology of the cartoon was, was quite complete, but it was also very different. Uh, there were things the cartoon did that I liked when they introduced She-Ra and suddenly... Hordak, who was her villain that she yep. fought, and he came from the from another dimension, the same dimension as Skeletor, and he was Skeletor's mentor and all this kind of thing. And I liked I liked all of that as a child. But I really think this movie that we're about to talk about it could have gone back to the original mini comic. Yep, it's very simple, or it could have followed the mythology of the cartoon, which you just rehearsed, but it did neither. <laughs> No, no. Um, but yeah, I agree. I like those. The I love the mini comics. But I was like you, a big fan of the show too. I would go, yeah. I would go over to my grandpa's after school, do my my homework to the extent that I did homework, and then uh, Voltron, then He Man is what I'd watch after school. Yeah. Anyway. So this movie, looking at this rich ground to draw from, said, how about instead we throw out everything that the people love, we won't have Prince Adam, uh, we won't have the twin swords, and how how committed are you guys to the idea of Eternia? <laughs> Uh, the, the original script by Ordell was actually a much more faithful attempt to capture the mythology of the television show and those old comics. A lot more of it was supposed to take place on Eternia. There was going to be a lot more of Skeletor. Uh, there's a lot more of Snake Mountain. Snake Mountain is the layer of, of Skeletor and his minions. Um, it's sort of the counterpoint, the darkness to Grayskull's light. Grayskull is the... Castle Grayskull is a really horrifying looking place, everybody. I I don't but that's just where the power resides i suppose anybody can have it um, right and that's one of the reasons why skeletor wants to break into gray skull and take the power from the sorceress um so so we're gonna have a beast man that talks they were even gonna they were even gonna have the ordell script even had the fact that he-man's mother is from earth she was an astronaut who ended up being caught in a wormhole that right. brought her to eternia and so then that was how they were going to establish the connection between he-man and earth because he's he's a kid of both worlds right we have returning villains in max and jason watch a movie the producers. Yes, yes. It, uh, in a previous episode of Max and Jason Watch a Movie, we met Yoram Clovis and Menahem Golan, editors of Canon Films. The Canon Group, um, I'll say this because I did a little reading about the Canon Group. The Canon Group was a really great producer of B-movies. The, they, they did a bunch of Chuck Norris movies. They did some Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. They rode the wave of the Ninja movies in 84. According to Roger Ebert, they were one of the more daring production companies. He said that they took a lot of great chances, and this is probably why they ended up having to go under. But this, this film, uh, He-Man, I'll just get this out of the way, 
was critically panned and a box office disaster. It had a budget of 22 million and it made 17 million. It didn't even it didn't even earn its budgets back. But this was one of those defeats that that, that really hurt Canon in the late 80s. Not just the late 80s, but the same year. They had another film that year, if you recall. I think I do recall. What was that one called, Jason? Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Um, and we'll, we'll probably be drawing some similarities too between that and this. So Ordell had a, had a, it sounds like Ordell, the guy who wrote this, had a better script, a more ambitious script. But Gary Goddard is a comic book fan and he wanted to create a comic book movie. And instead of leaning on this mythology, it seems like he tried to lean on Jack Kirby's New Gods. And he basically tried to use the New God story for his He-Man story. Now, for anybody who is curious about the New Gods, uh, 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 they were a creation of Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby was a big comic book guy at Marvel for a while. He had a little falling out, I think, for a while with Marvel, and he went to work for DC. And that's where he, I think that's when he creates the New Gods. Do you know anything about this? I um, very little. It's not anything that I ever read. N- nor I. The New Gods seems to me to be like Kirby trying to redo Asgard in DC. Okay. But Goddard also tries to bring in some ideas from the Thor comic book, apparently. And he was looking for the big cosmic stories of Fantastic Four. So he really didn't want to direct a Masters of the Universe film. It appears not. And so he takes all these, you know, uh, elements and kind of makes a pastiche of them, I think, puts it in a blender and comes up with this weird script. Yes. That was, that could do nothing but offend fans of the cartoon and fans of that original comic book. Absolutely. Because we have Skeletor, we have He-Man, but they don't interact much. Instead, he's got to fight an army of, like, uh, Stormtrooper-like figures. Yeah, well, you know, I, I don't want to jump ahead, but there was a there was a seminal moment in watching this film in which I realized just how odd it was when, because I grew up with Masters of the Universe, and I had never seen this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I guess I should probably say that I had never seen this movie until just a few days ago. Uh, because I think that at the time when it came out, I was pretty much coming to the end of my interest in Masters of the Universe. Yeah. I was more into G.I. Joe and this kind of thing. But there was a moment when I was watching this film and I was realizing, okay, Skeletor is showing up with his army that looked like they come from space balls <laughs> to invade our planet. And He-Man and his crew are in hot pursuit in a pink Cadillac. Mm-hmm. And it was then that I kind of realized that this film really, really departed from any attempt to try to capture the aesthetic of this toy. Any version of it, actually. Yeah, no, it's true. There's really not much more to say. Um, they got some, they got a- That's <laughs> over. <laughs> That's it. I mean, about, about, about the production, about the production. Um, they got a, a, a really aesthetically fine pe- uh, a specimen in Dolph Lundgren to play He-Man. He's not the bodybuilder. He's not Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he is, he's very muscular. He's very athletic. And, and just coming off of uh, Rocky IV at this yes. time. Yes, he's, he's still having trouble with the English language, but that's it's not too bad. He looks the part. It's fine. Frank Langella jumped at the role. Um, he didn't hesitate when they said, I mean, he saw the script. Uh, I, I just watched an interview with him uh, specifically to kind of get a handle on why he did this movie. But when he gets to, it was this, this I'll, I'll put a link to it in the uh in the show notes it's uh him kind of curating his career his big highlights and he loves this role skeletor but he leads into it with uh this was a terrible script worst script i've ever read he said i love skeletor and i didn't hesitate my son was a huge fan of skeletor and so he jumped right in and uh embraced it 
That's cool. And uh, and thinks not without reason that it's one of his best roles in yeah in in his career. Langella has had a great career. Uh, and and to um, as the the reverse image, Dolph Lundgren feels this was his worst it, film. It might be. I mean. I feel a little bad for him because he is still navigating the language issue. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, but I think that would have been okay because he is supposed to be from another planet or dimension or whatever. So that could have, they could have worked with that. They could have. Yeah. But uh, they didn't. But, but then there's everything else in the script that makes it bad for him. Those are the two main performances. The sorceress, who is actually kind of a pivotal character, uh, is changed really dramatically. Instead of being a person who looks at least like she's in the same age range as He-Man and the rest of the characters in the movie, except for Skeletor, he's kind of ageless because he has no skin on his face. But uh, instead they make her an older woman who just gets older and older. Yeah, but she's sufficiently helpless as she was in the cartoon. She is, she is, but even more so. Yeah. in this film that is really all there is to say about the production uh low budget sort of canon specialty do you want to say anything about the score right now uh so the the film score was done by bill conti and for listeners i'm i'm actually a big fan of bill conti some of my favorite scores have been done by him i go to his scores actually quite a bit when i just need a random uh film score to listen to when i'm cooking or grilling um my probably my two favorites of his are rocky and uh, i like uh, and his for your eyes only is just is just absolutely i think fantastic i i i love those scores and I like his style. He uses a lot of percussion, a lot of brass. Uh, his his cues and themes are uh, very easy to pick out. They're often very melodic. Um, and Bill Conti, uh, by some miracle, was brought in to do this film. He he definitely wrote a very Bill Conti-like score. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of brass, a lot of percussion, a lot of rousing themes to it. But it's very interesting um, in listening to it. I actually was not really that thrilled about it, even though he's one of my favorite my favorite uh, film composers. And it it actually got me to thinking about how the content of a film can affect how you listen to the music of that film. Because when a film is made, you have a story, you have acting, you have these visual images, and they are married together with uh, sound effects and with the music. And those elements all affect each other. One of the things that, that film fans know very well about uh, the original Star Wars movie that we, today is called A New Hope, that many say was saved in editing because it was, a, it was a disaster, and yet it was edited very well, and John Williams' score was just kind of this into-the-stratosphere kind of good score that really, and, and these elements affected how we see that movie. And listening to Bill Conti's score, I had a very difficult time taking it seriously, even though I think that a lot of his, a lot of his skills are brought to bear, because in listening to it, as I did tonight, in addition to watching the movie several days ago, he does a lot of different things. There's, there's a lot of different melodies that he brings in for the different situations. Different melodies are used for different characters. He really did a, a very good job with it. But in listening to the, the main theme, it's the theme that's played over the credits. In listening to the theme, it sound the main theme sounds more like something that would be in uh, a parody film. Like I almost felt like that it's something that the Zucker Abrahams crew would put in the ending credits when they showed the in one of their comedies, you know, the makers of Airplane and The Naked Gun, where they have this kind of ironic heroic theme at the end during the the ending credits. I, I, I thought of the Police Academy movies and the, the credits of those films. 
um, and I just had a very difficult time taking the score very seriously. I also, I also feel like that my friend Bill Conti, my hero Bill Conti, I don't know him, swiped some themes from other movies. And I think I want to save this. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one now. One of the action cues uh, that is used in a lot of the action themes is this kind of um, da 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 da, which is really a cue from um, uh, Miklos Rosa's score for Ben Hur. Okay. And it just it just stuck out to me very 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 clearly. And I also feel like that he ripped off John Williams several times. And I'll I'll kind of come back to those. Well, this is a great time to jump into the to the actual. Film it itself. is because one of the first because because one of the next things I'm going to talk about is in one of the early scenes. But I do want to say it's okay for a composer to kind of uh, reuse a lot of these themes, but it sticks out a lot. I think the reason why it sticks out so much in this film is because he's not the only one who's cribbing from other people. Okay, you know uh, there is so much in this film that looks like. Well, did you just take that from the Star Wars set? Yeah. You know, did you just did you just run into Steven Spielberg's office and take his Close Encounters of the Third Kind music cue? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think if just one person had done it, if 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 Condi had just been cribbing on Superman, say because He Man is a very Superman like figure, and he was just kind of yes. trying to draw musical attention to it, um, and and kind of have fun with that idea, that would be one thing. But everybody in here seems like they they don't have an original idea, and they're and, and they and they're and they're trying to bring in stuff from things that they love right instead of doing something that serve that serves the he-man story i think anyway let me ask you this okay yes in in listening to this score like if you if you after this podcast you turned it on and played it is there anything about this score that would make you specifically think of he-man oh i i don't think so no no Um, no no not at all nope (laughs) Um, i agree so we get let's let's jump into the movie yes opens uh it opens like a lot of films do with a credit sequence. I'm going to ask you, what did you think? Now, see, Jason and I have just done a bunch of Superman films. We just did a Superman film by the Canon Group. You guys haven't heard this yet. You will have heard it by the time. Well, maybe you. Yeah, you will have heard it by the time we. By the time this airs. But I immediately thought, wow, the the copyright infringements are beginning early because it looks like a credit sequence from Superman. And back to the Bill Conti score, it seems like he's borrowing or leaning really heavily on John Williams. It's the same. It's the same style. Yeah. The, the credits are the same. They've got like the like the little three dimensional uh, anim- animated letters that are flying away from us, and uh, and it's all right away. I remember I had this memory of like sitting in the audience. Uh, I had when I went and saw this movie in the theater. I I'll be honest, I didn't have high hopes. The trailer did not inspire confidence. The credits then continued to not inspire confidence, and so then we 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 I think this film opens on a little battle scene, right? He Man and Tila and Man in Arms looking. Tila and Man in Arms don't look really anything like they do in the cartoon no they don't you know um man in arms has stumbled out of what is it hill street blues was that where he was decamped yeah the actor yeah uh, the actress who played tila chelsea something or other was just kind of getting started in her career yeah then did she do a lot after this she kind she did not okay. she did a lot of television some film roles nothing nothing to really point out to anybody but uh but she has work good 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 um because like i know john crier the john uh, john john cypher sorry that's the guy who was man at arms i have to say they both do as good as they can do in this movie they're they're okay they're fine 
uh, John Cipher. He's very, he, he seems to really be having fun in the role. Um, yes, yes. But, but they, they have a little battle with these uh, robots that look a lot like stormtroopers, but, you know, that you that you found at Walmart on a, a as a, you know, a, a, you know, a, a 10 for $10 deal on henchmen at Walmart. And He-Man has a battle with him. And uh, is it, I, am I missing something here? I feel like I'm missing something from well, the intro. I, um, so, there's the initial scene where we have the, I think, matte painting of Castle Grayskull, which is the only time we see it, which actually is just occurring to me now. It never occurred to me that we actually never really see Castle Grayskull. We're inside of it, but yeah. we see the exterior again. And um, in watching it several days ago, I knew I was in trouble in the very first scene because you have the, the stormtroopers you're talking about yeah. uh, garbed in, in their kind of shiny black armor. And I'm serious. They look like the people from Spaceballs. Yeah. It's true. Looks like you, you expect uh, Mel Brooks to come running out and, and do his little salute as he's running up to the throne. Instead, we get something that also doesn't work or or is unintentionally funny to me. And that's because uh, uh, I, I, you know, Frank Langella, we're going to say a lot of good things about his performance, but this is not his fault. This is the fault of the director. There's this really, I think, awkward scene where Skeletor enters the chamber and he begins the march up to his throne and the troops are all lined up. It's like something out of Return of the Jedi with the yeah. and so forth. But they made the decision because uh, fans of He-Man will remember that Skeletor has a staff with a ram's head on the end of it. But they decide to for him to kind of, as he walks, to use the staff as a walking stick. And there's this big thud every time that he walks. And it, it came off to me is funny. Okay. Thing they would do in Spaceballs as kind of like uh, something to annoy the viewer as something that was distracting and funny. Um, also, um, Bill Conti's score in that scene, uh, one of the things that I think that he swiped is I really feel like that uh, he used a bit of John Williams' uh, Death Star theme from Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. It's very, very clear to me. And I, well, yeah, oh, yeah, he John Williams swiped that from uh, Gustav Hulst from his The Planets. But at the same time, like it, it, it's like, oh, are we, are we going to destroy Alderaan here? Like, <laughs> it really, it, it, that scene was very jarring to me. Uh, I liked the set. Yeah, I did too. I liked the set very much. It might be the only set in the film that I liked, but I thought the set was great. And once he stopped tapping his stick, his staff, uh, Frank Langella's presence uh, is immediately very arresting. He, 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 he takes control of the scene after that. Absolutely. But it's a but it's a poorly directed scene. Oh, absolutely. Well, they they all are. Even, <laughs> even, even when Frank Langella is just chewing through the scenery, playing to the back seats in the in the theater, there, there's there's a bunch. He has a bunch of great lines in this moment. Uh, I've got a few of them written down. I think. Um, but like, uh, I think Skeletor. Have they caught He-Man? They haven't caught He-Man yet. But he's having this talk with uh, Sorceress, and she's like, "You shouldn't." She says something like, "You shouldn't dare this," and he's like, "I am." Skeletor, I dare anything, you know? And he's this larger than life character. He's like, he says this line too later on. He, I must possess all or I possess nothing, you know? And you compared Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor to him. And I think that's what you were getting at is this character who is just so delightful at being evil. Absolutely. And, uh, uh, having great lines and being cruel to all of his henchmen, very ambitious. And in some ways, I mean, well, in this film, definitely the most interesting character in the film. Well, that's that's right. I, I've read too, kind of cutting into our production notes a little bit here. He ad libbed or borrowed lines.
lines from Shakespeare and from other plays he had been in and books he had read to 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 beef up Skeletor because he was getting no help from the script. Right. And so he decided he took it upon himself to kind of to kind of try and make his character something he could have fun doing and, and be proud of. Fa- interestingly, interestingly, he didn't when he plays bad guys. He talks about this in the in that series of uh, that the commentary that I told you about earlier or the interview. He doesn't think of Skeletor. He didn't think of Skeletor as a bad guy while he was playing him. Okay, he's like he's like for me to I don't. He said he didn't want to. He doesn't like to play bad guys. He didn't play Dracula this way. He didn't play Skeletor this way. He didn't play Nixon this way. He says I when. I'm playing those guys I'm trying to be for them as well I'm trying to believe what they believe yeah. in the moment so that it doesn't look like I'm playing a villain or know that I'm a villain while I'm playing it right right uh, I thought that that was a really interesting idea about playing a villain, right? It, not with your tongue in your cheek, not doing it ironically, not, oh, I get to play a bad guy. But how do I how do I sell this in a way, like, I don't know that I'm a bad guy. You know, Skeletor doesn't think he's a bad guy. Right. Uh, Evil Lynn doesn't think she's a bad guy. Right. The only people who may think of themselves as bad guys associated with this film may be the director. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, maybe the guy who plays Gwildor, I don't know. We, we, we've arrived, uh, we've got the big Skeletor scene, and we see some of this Frank Langella just chewing through scenery, basically elevating everybody a- a- around him. I mean, Sorceress is terrible in this movie. She's not, a, I don't know, even know if she's a good actress, but she doesn't really help do much for the scene. No, I mean, uh, they could have cut her out. I mean, I mean... I guess he does kind of taunt her a little bit, uh, but her character is really pretty unnecessary. Uh, but really, the film opens. Apparently, Skeletor's forces have have won a great victory uh, over the, the the rebellion. I suppose and we don't uh, Castle Grayskull because apparently He Man is the leader of the resistance. I think I heard that. It's not really part of the He Man mythology at all. Nope. We then cut to He Man in his first action scene, which needs to be discussed. Yes. Um. On the fields of uh, Eternia, which looks a lot like Arizona, that's another thing that this film does really terribly, is you can use sets on Earth and they can be other places, but you have to do some kind of establishing shot. You have to do something that lets us know where we're at in the world, you know? Yes. And this looks like we're already on Earth in Arizona or, you know, Utah or wherever the hell it is that they shot this movie. But it doesn't look like, I I got no sense that this was a different place, right? Right. Um, And we get some, you you know, some like really amazing Shakespearean dialogue and and in the in the first He-Man scene. Not only that, uh, well, first of all, I have to say something shocking. Uh, this film is edited by Anne V. Coates who I was stunned, absolutely stunned to learn, is one of the great editors in the history of cinema. Anne V. Coates was the editor for Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, wow. Uh, One of the, probably the most important female editor from, not the early years of Hollywood, but, you know, just before, you know, we were born from the 60s and looking, uh, and before, uh, but looking at her career, she has edited some of my my favorite movies and won an Oscar for Lawrence of Arabia. She also edited this. And this action scene that we're talking about was so awkwardly edited. It really is that it was very distracting to me. Um, what 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 about it was uh, was bothering you? He man has to take on a, a group of these uh, of Skeletor's helmeted minions, and he makes pretty quick work of them. But the editing is done in such a way that there's close ups of his sword, his chest. Oh. Uh, 
various things that we really don't need to look at. So we never really see the flow of the movement of these people. And uh, it, it, it was, to me, it was very disturbing. As an action scene, it was not exciting for that reason, that it just seemed, I, I, I almost felt like they were cutting around. I mean, I don't know if Dolph Lundgren is, uh, is poor with action choreography. Mm-hmm. I think he was fine in Rocky Four, which he did before this. But it, it almost feels like that the scene was edited to cut around awkward movements of the actors, but I can't tell. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Very weirdly. I, I, I doubt it was Lundgren. I mean, he, he done a lot of action stuff and he is like a black belt in karate and he's, he's actually quite an athletic and dexterous guy. I have to wonder if his counterparts were having a lot of trouble and they had to shoot around a lot of that because this was before you could just CGI a mask on somebody. Yeah. And so I have to imagine that the visibility of these actors was terrible. Yeah. I'm sure they weren't moving very well. Good point. And uh, side note, uh, one of the things that they had to use these robots because one of the one I do know one of the one of the one of the producers, uh, I think it was Mattel, not producers, but the, the Mattel people were like, He-Man can't cut people with his sword. Mm. Somebody said that. And so they in court and they bring in, so they bring in a lot of these uh, robots for him to slash through. I think that was probably a mistake on their part to do that. Yeah. Uh, they didn't mind when Skeletor vaporizes somebody later on in the movie. Right. So it is an awkward scene and they, they, I do I do remember being like jarred by that. Well, they really like Dolph Lundgren's pecs. I mean, I get it. They're nice pecs, but I wonder too, I don't know if the, the editor's still alive, this either represents a kind of a flagging of her skills or a paucity of good stuff to work with on her part. She died recently. Okay. Uh, her last, I actually just looked this up. Uh, her last film was, uh, I think, Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, wow. And she died just in 2018. And she I- worked constantly she she was she was a workhorse i mean she 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 edited a lot of films going back to the 40s uh she she's really one of the legends well then and that and that needs to be that needs to be stated but man this film well the, i editing in this film i'm just not so sure about it well i i think that it, it has to represent the the stuff she's getting the what she's getting because the editor can only work with what they get uh while the mythbusters did demonstrate that you could you could actually shine shit uh you could you could create a shiny ball of well-polished shit in editing it's a lot harder i guess anyway so in this fight though superman uh, comes into one uh, runs into one of the big drivers of the plot which is gwildor and his cosmic key because these guys these bad guys have the cosmic key don't they see and that uh, so the bad guys have a cosmic key and gwildor has another one i don't think they i don't think so so the cosmic key is important to skeletor for bad purposes evil for evil but but he originally says that they they were able to take them by surprise because he had something and that was not really made very i I didn't think that was made very clear okay so 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 maybe this is how skeletor skeletor has had gwildor the uh wizard billy barty who has actually been in a ton of stuff the 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 actor who plays gwildor yeah uh, i mean he's been in all kinds of stuff he's uh, skeletor's hired gwildor to create this cosmic key which which basically is like a boom tube in 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 uh, DC's uh, DC Comics, it's a it's a, a mother box. It's like a mother box that creates portals uh, all <laughs> all over the DC universe. Skeletor has had Gwildor make one. After he gets into Grayskull, the Skeletor realizes that there's a loose end, I guess, and that's why he has his people go get Gwildor. Yeah, Gwildor could make another key. Gwildor, maybe there's going to be issues with his cosmic key, and he might need to have Gwildor fix it. They don't really explain it. There's a lot to me. There, there's some stolen bases here. Like, 
like I, I really feel like um, that my confusion is born of the fact that, okay, so why does Skeletor need this key? Why does he need to prevent him having it? Yeah. I mean, everything that he wanted to do, he's already done. So He-Man, uh, Man-at-Arms, and Tila save Gwildor, and uh, immediately they're all fast friends. Uh, Gwildor is a is a little dwarf who kind of looks like, I would, I would imagine, Orko looks under his hat if he ever lost yeah. his hat. Uh, yeah. So Orko... Is a person whose face you never see. His face is always shrouded in shadow based on this giant wizard hat he has. Um, Gwildor is sort of that stand-in. But why not just have Orko? I don't understand. The thought had occurred to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so why not just have this character that is beloved by audiences? Yeah. Who already knows him. Yeah. And anyway, and they learn about the cosmic key. And then He-Man's like, well, do you have another one? Well, yes, I do, He-Man. <laughs> and so they go to Gwildor's place and it was in this moment where they're going to Gwildor, Gwildor's little Yoda-like hut. Again, we're cribbing on Star Wars because, I mean, this looks exactly like Yoda's place. He acts a little bit like Yoda. His cane has a bunch of, like, Christmas lights on it. Like, like there's, it's supposed to be technology, right? Yeah. Like, it's supposed to be high tech and there's lights on it. And I noticed like, there's a lot of lights on his cane. And then I noticed that there are lights on so many things in this movie. There are, there are little lights on their guns. There are <laughs> lights on swords. Skeletor has like Darth Vader lights, the, the lights that are on Darth Vader's chest. But on, on Skeletor, they're on his arm, like on, on an arm gauntlet. Yeah. There's lights everywhere. And I, I was just thinking, well, they don't really do much and they, they kind of distract you. I, for me, as I'm watching this film, uh, I'm like, oh God, that's just like, that's a prop for no reason, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so it doesn't really do much to add texture to the world, I didn't think. And I just felt bad for the prop people who had to like always be powering these things. <laughs> I, I I see that. I mean, this is a phrase you won't hear from me much about this film, but that didn't bother me. <laughs> so so He Man and everybody learns about the the cosmic key and how it, uh, how it how it caused them to lose the battle and have Skeletor get behind their lines or whatever it is that Skeletor did. There's a little tension for a second because Teela's really mad at Gwildor about this, and then she gets brought to her senses as, as she, well, it's just an accident, it's okay. But at that moment, Skeletor's people find Gwildor's house, and they have to make a quick retreat. But for some reason, Gwildor has a passage straight into Grayskull. Oh. <laughs> so from Gwildor's house, why did why did Skeletor need this key? He could have been said, so here's what I imagine should have happened. Skeletor's a bright guy, Gwildor's a bright guy. So Gwildor, you have a key, you can make a cosmic key that allows me to get into Grayskull secretly. I also have a passage. Yes, yes, yes. But well, actually, scene, this scene that you're talking about, because I had already thought of, of Spaceballs in the first scene. <laughs> And so there's this, uh, for those who haven't seen Spaceballs, there's this scene where they try to, to, to beam President Scrooge, or whatever his name is, uh, to a different location, and he ends up being backwards, and it doesn't work. And he finally just says, no thanks, I'll walk, and just goes into the next room. And this scene is kind of like that, because they say, they, they actually um, uh, say to Gwildor, oh, well, you can use this device, and you can get us right into Castle Grayskull. Are you, are you crazy? If they do that, or if we do that, then Skeletor will be able to sense where we are. So we can't do that. Oh, what are we going to do? And then leads them through the door and they are immediately exactly where they wanted him to <laughs> transport him, them to. And so I absolutely felt that way about this entire scene. It was like, wow, well, I mean, he could have done that all along. It's it, To me, it's almost like a comedy scene. Well, yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's funny. It's I, I hate to say this. I was a little drunk while I was watching He-Man, but I didn't notice that they just walked through a passage from Gwildor's house 
through a cave passage right into Castle Grayskull. And there they are. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, what a what a terrible security at Grayskull. What a waste of technology that Skeletor used, you know? Yeah, he used it all. And all he had to do was actually go into Gwildor's uh, home, which, um, well, I guess he didn't, he never left it unlocked. He makes a point of saying that. But I think Skeletor could probably get into a locked hut. I think so. Well, his yeah. people do seem to get into it. And so they, they go and uh, they almost get caught by Skeletor, right? They have a few, they storm the castle and they have a little interaction with Skeletor, don't they? They do. And there's a confrontation that doesn't really, that, I mean, we don't get a He-Man Skeletor battle here. No. They end up um, using the cosmic key to go to a different dimension, a mysterious dimension, one we've never seen before. That's right. That's right. And uh, and the, the effect of the wormhole that they create with the, with their version of the mother box, uh, the cosmic key. <coughs> so the cosmic key looks like a weird accordion with like dangerous spikes on it. Yeah. I was watching this and my son was like, in and out of the room and Gwildor starts hitting the keys and my son says he's not even touching them because <laughs> the actor's prosthetics must be so uh, thick that he doesn't feel that he's not touching the keys. He's, he's not doing it in any kind of way that looks systematic, but luckily it doesn't matter. The, the portal opens and all of the characters do this weird, some kind of weird action he move to jump through the portal. I think Tila does a flip through it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he-Man dives through it, but they almost forget the cosmic key. Oh, God. And it's left behind, and Skeletor... I blotted this out of my mind. <laughs> and Skeletor's, like, uh, diving for the cosmic key, and out of nowhere... Uh, well, not out of nowhere, out of, a, out, of the, out of the portal, a grappling hook comes flying in in a way that it never would, owing to real physics, but it grabs the, grabs the cosmic key, and it yanks it through the portal. But it's a really terrible effect. Worked in Supergirl. Well, well that's a much superior film. <laughs> and so... Then the, the characters all appear in the new world, and that new world is Earth. Yep. And uh, they're greeted by a cow initially. They, yes, they are. They are. And uh, I don't know what to say about this scene. It's bad. Yeah. They're all trying to regroup, and uh, <laughs> something gets said that will annoy me much later on in the film when they're talking about, like, well, can we get back to. So they're, they're regrouping. What strange new place is this? I've never seen anything like this before. And there's a, like, there's a cow mooing at them, and Gwildor's next to the cow, mooing at the cow. And it's all supposed to be hilarious but it's not his his comedic interactions with the cow don't quite work what is really funny in the scene which isn't supposed to be is how bad his prosthetic lips are yeah like uh it's basically it's not much better than a puppet that you have on the end of your hand but anyway they say okay we've got a they use some new term for a distance a, a, a measurement a, a, a unit of distance and we'll spread out and do five parsons or whatever it is that they fucking say it's really stupid terminology but uh and we'll meet back here in a quadricept what, you know, whatever it is they say and but then they get to this, the crucial question will we be able to get back to Eternia oh well there's a I have the home coordinates already built into the into the cosmic key is what Gwildor says yeah this is utter bullshit shit as we'll find out later on because they have a lot of trouble getting back to Eternia when they do finally get the cosmic key and we'll get to that in a minute but it would be a stupid inventor who didn't build the coordinates uh, to his home planet into the very into this cosmic key yeah it made a lot of sense it's too bad that you didn't seem to really do that Gwildor so they so so now they're going to go out and interact with Earth and this is like you know fish out of water stranger in a strange land kind of comedy that's supposed to happen one of the big moments is when a man in arms is, decides they need to eat because you should never think on an empty stomach. You need air quotes for that big moment, Tess. <laughs> yes, 
one of the big comedy beats is uh is basically like a Popeye's chicken. I think it actually is a Popeye's chicken. Um, yeah. There's a couple in a convertible, and in the back seat of their convertible, they have a big bucket of chicken and ribs. It's chicken and ribs at Popeye's, and yeah. we get that terrible grappling hook effect again. It comes in and grabs the uh, the pop. I'm sorry, the the bag of chicken and yanks it away and it's just a really i mean it's a terrible scene it's a terrible effect i don't know i don't know why your great editor didn't go to the director and say we just need to cut this whole segment out it's not funny look it's good terrible um and so so that's going on on earth they're trying to find the cosmic key enter our i suppose i suppose this is supposed to be our window into the into this story we need the audience needs some kind of character that we can identify with and so now we meet them in a great we're not we, we, we i think this is where we meet them court Cox, we meet her. She's Julie. Julie, and she she works at the restaurant. She works at the restaurant. She's going to be one of our surrogates in this in this movie. Well, you know, not only that, and uh, the other one that you're about to mention is uh, uh, Kevin. Kevin. Kevin Corrigan, played by Robert Duncan McNeil. But really. <sighs> In reflection, Julie and Kevin are actually the main characters of the film. Yes, they are. They're not just, now see, you call them surrogates because, you know, we kind of, I mean, in some ways for, for the for the two of you out there that have never seen Jaws, that's what uh, Chief Brody is in in Jaws. He's the, he's the, doesn't like the ocean. He knows nothing about the ocean. And there's this, there's this shark out there and he's surrounded by all these characters who know things that he doesn't know. And Julie and Kevin are those characters but like Chief Brody in Jaws, they they actually are the main characters of the film. And they are, they're really kind of the protagonists and everything else kind of happens to them, Yep. to me. No, I think that that's fair. What they should have been was the surrogates, but like the emotional journey that, that takes place in the film, it's Julie and Kevin, right? Yeah. No, I think that that's absolutely right. Which tells you a lot of about why this film didn't get He-Man right. Right. Because it's Masters of the Universe and Julie, as earnest and great as Courtney Cox is in the film, she's not actually great, but it's an early role. Uh, but, but she's fine. I mean, she's she fine. Actually- you know what you say that they did. You know, as the sur- you know, as kind of our surrogates, as kind of uh, st- stand-ins for us. Both of them do that well. Although yeah. I have to say that I expected Kevin's character to to drop out pretty quickly, and I was actually kind of surprised that he kept sticking around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. <laughs> He'll, he'll be really important in the film's uh, final act. Your statement. But yeah, you're right. And and that's not what this, that's not what He-Man fans would have wanted. Right. And so, A, we're on Earth. Why are we on Earth? B, uh, why do these people become the central focus of the film? Yeah. I, so, they, so we meet her at Popeye. She works there, but she's about to leave because her parents had died and she's going to, she needs to make a clean break with her little town and go out West and, and get away from her grief. So she's going to break up with her boyfriend, Kevin, uh, but they're still friends. They go to her parents' graveyard, to the grave, and it's at the grave where they're talking that they find the cosmic key. What's that? Oh, this is one of those new Japanese synthesizers, which isn't what I would have thought, even in 87. Um, But uh, she's like, are you sure? He's like, oh, yeah, we'll we'll take it to my guitar guy later on and he'll he'll tell us all about it. They kind of do some boy boyfriend girlfriend thing before she's about to leave. He says, "Hey, come come watch me rehearse at the at the high school because he's in a he's in a band and he's going to play for the prom or something, is that right?" Anyway, yeah. He gets to puttering around with the cosmic key and this is the first moment where we get another rip off of another film. 
which is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, they use the effect of the of the of the keyboard communication with the aliens yes. in the, in that for the for the sounds of the cosmic key, and they even like do some of the lights and stuff like that. But it's almost it's not quite as bad as bum 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 bum. It's not quite that bad, but it's really really close. Yeah. And so he hits the he hits a few of these keys, and they're both like, oh my god, it's amazing. It wasn't. <laughs> I didn't. They really overreact to that. I thought. <laughs> Um, and the thing lights up, and when that happens, of course, it lets Skeletor know where the cosmic key is. And Kevin is so amazed by this 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 synthesizer, he leaves Julie at the high school, and he's like, "I'm gonna go and take this to the music guy." Is that right? It's him who leaves, right, to take it to the music guy, and she's left behind at the high school. Yeah, he goes to take it to the music guy, and she says she wants to stick around. Okay. And and take in the memories or whatever. So he he takes off and she stays behind and just okay. kind of hangs out. Because yeah, he's he's got to go get a consultation on this synthesizer. <laughs> um, I I don't know. After four years of being in high school, I was I would never have done that. Never would have been like, ah, oh, I need to take it in. <laughs> One more time. Skeletor now has the signal. He sends his henchmen. His henchmen are ready to go. Henchmen that you've never seen as a He-Man before. He-Man fan before. Who the fuck is Karg? Who is Sarad? You know, Beast Man. He's the only guy we really know. And Evil In, of course, too. Um, and this new guy, Blade. Anyway, they all go and uh, they're very unstealthy when they invade the high school. Which uh, isn't one of them. He doesn't have an eye patch on, but he has like a. Um like a lens or something over one eye. You know, why didn't they just name him Triclops? Because if you recall, there was a... There was a Triclops. Yeah. I don't know why they didn't name him Triclops. To I be mean, it would, have been a it would have been a bad Triclops, but just try, just try to do some fan service. Well, clearly they had the money to do some serious prosthetics and costuming because all these guys have a lot of stuff on them. You know, they're yeah. all heavily made up. They're all... Uh, they look as good as you would expect for a film, for this film. But they could have done Merman. They could have done Triclops. They could, they could have easily done Triclops. He would have been an easy one to do. Uh, no. They could have done Trapjaw, no. right? No. Uh, any of these well-known people that that, that that fans liked. But they, they didn't. And so so they used their boom tube to get to Earth. And immediately they, they, they land at the high school. They beat the shit out of some poor security guard. <laughs> like... So it's a really great, it's, it's, it's great in that it's really funny. Julie is like, what's that sound? And uh, then it cuts out to, uh, this is actually one of the good bits of editing that get done in the film. It cuts out to uh, the security guard confronting the He-Man, I'm sorry, Skeletor's minions. And he gets roughed up a little bit. And then he gets hurled through the door of the of the into the into the gymnasium uh, from outside the gymnasium into it, and it looks so terrible. Like it doesn't it doesn't follow the the trajectory of the scene we just saw him when we when we see him get picked up. It doesn't match anything that Beastman does to him. It looks like they just like launched him, you know, through a cannon <laughs> into the no. door. It doesn't look like he got tossed through the door. But anyway. And then we get a reaction shot from Courtney Cox and she gives it her all. Yeah. She really, she looks scared. She runs. And, and this is something that the film does get right. Skeletor's henchmen are abysmally incompetent. And this is true to the, to the, to the source material. And they can't catch her and she gets away and she escapes. As she's getting out, we, we cut to Kevin at the music store where, where he's getting a breakdown on this uh, on the synthesizer. Music guy doesn't know anything about it. We review the bum, 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 bum. Boop. 
the extra note right. so they don't get sued. Right. And uh, and then they see all the police cars going to to the high school. Now, I want to highlight this a little bit. Kevin realizes that they're all going to the high school. Does does the does the music guy have like a police scanner? Yes. So all police I, scanner. Goes, oh my God, Julie's at the high school. And he goes to the high school and uh, tries to get in to see if Julie's there. And this is where he meets uh, Detective Hugh Libick. The, the detective, uh, I called him in my notes, I called him Detective Principal because the the, the actor who plays Lubbock is the mean principal. Strickland. Say it again. Uh, principal Strickland from uh, Back to the Future. Yes, and it's the same character. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Which I love, by the way. Oh, I, I did too, I did too. Uh, he grew on me in this, this watching. Before, I, I used to kind of think, well, he's just doing Strickland. But it actually, he does have some good lines in this movie, actually. He does have some good reaction shots, and he's pretty funny. So Kevin gets to the high school. He's trying to find Julie. Lubbock, he and Lubbock immediately have friction. As Lubbock has taken notes as, as Kevin is... This is this is so bizarre. Kevin's behavior in this scene is so bizarre. Lubbock is doing his job. Yeah. He's being a good detective. All right, son, now tell me what happened. What happened? What do you remember happening? And what are you guys doing in here? We're doing a rehearsal. Well, you didn't see anybody else in the in the in the in the in the high school. No. Why are you taking notes? Why are you out there trying to find Julie? And he, and and I'm just like, dude, he's trying to find Julie. He's trying to get a. He's trying to. He's trying to figure out what's going on. He has not been mean to the kid yet. I know. How. And, and this is when Strickland comes out, like his alter ego, ego, Principal Strickland. Okay, son. And he's kind of mean to the kid. He ends up taking the kid to her house to see if she's shown up there, right? Well, see, and that's where, I mean, both of them act weird. Because on the one hand, Kevin acts totally inappropriately. Yeah. But, then, but at the same time, he doesn't really give the detective any reason to suspect him. Because he's saying, you know, I'm worried about my girlfriend. You've got to, you've got to find her. Yeah. I think he gives a description or whatever. And then suddenly it's like a, a switch is flipped. And, and the detective is like, well, you know, we're going to go find her. And I'm going to keep an eye on you, kid. Yeah. Like, well, you know, he, he acted inappropriately. But he didn't really give any evidence that he had caused the explosion, killed his girlfriend, nothing like that. So, you know, both of them. Um, Have odd reactions. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that just continues because we just established by his explosion for no reason at Lubbock. Yeah. Um, that he he needs Lubbock to find Julie. Then they get to his house, yeah. Julie's house, and he's kind of trying to find himself some food. And Julie calls, right? Yeah. And when he answers... And she's like, hey, oh my God, you won't believe what happened. Aliens just attacked me. And he's like, oh, that's, uh, I'm sorry. I don't know. This is the wrong number. He does some kind of like thing. And, and why? Why? Exactly. Yeah. Why? Because he should have said, oh, detective, she's right here. We should go get her. Right? Yeah. He has he has no reason to distrust the detective. None. He has no reason to distrust him. And yet they distrust each other. And and then he engages in this elaborate ruse to give Julie some cover. And I, I was just thinking, like, whoever was writing the script, and I'm, I'm guessing it's Goddard because Goddard and his other rewrite buddy, they, they've seen this kind of scene in other movies where yeah. there's a person who's on the run from the cops who calls the home where the cops have staked out, right? Right. And their friend answers. And then their friend does this thing where they're like, oh, that's nice. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. They do some kind of like subterfuge, right? Yeah, and which, can be, which can be exciting, but this is annoying. It, well, it doesn't make any sense in this scene, but it's like they its like they thought, oh, that's what this scene needs. It needs some subterfuge because that's what happens when, when there's a cop in your home and somebody calls, <laughs> you just start lying immediately. And so like in Gary Goddard's world, if there's a cop in his home and somebody calls, he's going to pretend that it's somebody else, right? Yeah. Anyway, 
It made no sense. I was just thinking that the whole the whole scene. Why didn't you tell Detective Lubbock? Julie's on the phone. We could probably go get her. Detective Lubbock thinks that maybe that was a lie. Maybe it was Julie on the phone. They've got the cosmic key. The henchmen are still on the hunt for the cosmic key, right? Yes. And uh, this will we're gonna get some more distrust between Lubbock and the and the detective. I'm sorry, the, the detective and Kevin, because uh, Kevin's warming up some chicken from earlier in the day in the microwave, and this is causing interference uh, with the tracking device of the Skeletor's of Skeletor's henchmen. And so they're just like, we'll destroy it. And so they blow it up, and the microwave explodes between Lubbock and Kevin, and they're both shocked, but Lubbock is so mad, he's just like, all right, you're coming with me. It's the final straw. <laughs> and and they've done nothing to help like cement trust between them. So Lubbock is gonna do something with him. I can't remember exactly what happens next, but um, well, Lubbock Lubbock ends up taking the cosmic key. Okay, with him, and he's gonna go check out his story or whatever. And of course, uh, now we also you know. Uh, at this point, Julie has now made friends with He-Man and his bunch. Oh yeah, well, we forgot about that. Do you well, you notice how easy it is to forget about He-Man. It is in this movie about He-Man, and because uh, He-Man and his comrades, uh, well, actually, no, He-Man single-handedly uh, saves Julie from Skeletor's minions in a blaster fight. Yes, yes, in the junkyard, and uh, and then they they become. Now here, it's probably a good time to talk about Dolph Lundgren. And because you mentioned earlier uh, his his accent and this kind of thing, his performance is not good. I'll be generous. His performance is not good. But at the same time, the problem with the script is that He-Man is without a doubt the most one-dimensional character in this whole freaking movie. He is, yeah. He-Man is written like a character from a, a CPR first aid video. <laughs> Like, it's all just, um, are you all right? Please tell me exactly what has happened. And, and and then he gets information. We must find Kevin right away. And he plays, he's a very nice guy. I mean, He-Man is a very, he's played as a very compassionate guy. We definitely like him. But this character of He-Man that is written for this film never, ever gets beyond just how can I help you? Yeah. What do we need to do in this moment to get the, the cosmic key? Uh, what do we need to do to defeat Skeletor, you know? Yeah. And it's really, I like, I liked, I, when I say I liked Dolph Lundgren in the film, I, he was a likable guy. Yeah, yeah. He's not good in this movie, and this character was not well-written by any stretch of the imagination. No, not not at all. Not at all. And so so Julie is running away from the high school. She ends up down this weird, very brightly lit, the most brightly lit dark alley I've ever seen. And uh, she uh, runs. Uh, she's running away from the henchmen. She gets into this little area by a pizza shop. I can't remember exactly where, what it is. Yeah. And then she runs into a man in bikini briefs, which is He-Man, who just who grabs her. And of course, she's she's reasonably freaked out by this this new assault on her senses. And he's like, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Um, and then, then, it, then it proceeds to what you're doing. But like nobody, I mean, they could have done more with the comedy by by pointing out how different everybody from Eternia looks. I mean, He Man is like he's wearing a cape and bikini briefs, right? Right. And uh, I mean, 
Dolph Lundgren is the guy to pull that look off, by the way. Well, that's uh, true. So she tells him these guys are chasing me, and then he has the fight. And then what happens? I don't remember. I don't remember exactly what happens uh, after he wins. They escape, and oh uh, well, um, he he um, he informs her that uh, he knows CPR first aid and he's here to help. <laughs> and uh, he discovers that Kevin has the cosmic key, and it's very important that they get to Kevin right away. And that's when she calls her house. Okay, okay, that's okay. That, I'm I can, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's when Kevin pulls his his uh, his scene from the heist with the with the phone subterfuge right yeah which but there was no evidence that she, that he was going to go to her house no no yeah why did she that was the other thing too like why did she she's she's just been assaulted this was the other question i had too she's her just parents been assaulted. Are dead. her parents are dead her parents are dead um yeah. kevin is at the synthesizer guys as far as she knows why call her empty house right that was a strange moment too like if she first called kevin's place and then the synthesizer place and if she'd gone through some steps then maybe we get there but again it comes back to that wonderful phrase you used stolen bases yeah yeah and so is that when Gwildor pulls up with the the pink Cadillac to get them out of there? And and yeah, he soups it up in exactly in exactly the way that uh, the time machine from from Back to the Future is souped up. It's got like a new engine on the back. Yeah, yeah. Did you notice that? Yeah, yeah. So another way in which this film cribs from other places. Now they pick up uh, Man at Arms and Tila, right? And then they end up, they all go to the music shop. Is that right? They, they they all pile into the into the pink Cadillac yep. and they go racing down the street, which was a surreal moment in which I I really had. <laughs> I'm watching a He-Man movie. Did but... they play Pink Cadillac in that scene? What's that? Did they play Pink Cadillac? No, they didn't. But I was I was humming it in my head. Yeah. So then we cut back to Castle Grayskull. Yes. Sorceress is looking much, much older. She's stuck in her strobe light and she can't get out. Right. And it's, and it's aging her dramatically. Must be a lot of UV rays in the strobe light that she's in. Or she smokes a lot. I don't know. Anyway. Um, and there's this kind of tender moment going on between Skeletor and Evil Lynn. Yeah. And they're kind of having this really interesting dialogue about like how he moves forward as the new ruler of Eternia, right? Right. And uh, she's giving him good advice and he He's listening to her like he is actually uh, not dismissive of her. And there right. seems to be some kind of warm feelings to the extent that Skeletor has warm feelings. But she she's she's the one who says you can't kill He-Man from a distance if you know, you're going to have to break him in front of everybody. Or he says that I can't remember. They come. Yeah, I think he says that I'm not going to make him a martyr. Exactly. These two do this scene pretty wonderfully, actually. Yeah. Um, Meg Foster's fine, actually, in this movie. Yeah. I think. They were gonna. They were going to put like crazy contact lenses in her eyes, but yeah. in the end, they just settled on her weird eyes. Her eyes are weird enough as they are. I've always thought that anytime I've seen her in a movie, I was like, "Are those contact lenses?" But I guess yeah. she just has really weird, light-colored eyes. I, I kind of like her as Evil Lynn. My big complaint, of course, is she doesn't have like that greenish-blue skin that Evil Lynn has in the cartoon. That's true. Uh, I, I true, but that's that's one of the minor sins of this movie. That's yeah, that's, no, it's, it's true. It's true. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I, I like their scene together. I like Frank Langella in that scene. Another stab at humor happens when the when the henchmen come in defeated and they're like, oh, well, we found He-Man. Uh, do you have the cosmic key? No, no. 
I want to say no to that. We were we were horribly outnumbered. Right. And uh, and then Skeletor. Uh, sadly, this is something that I wish they would have done. I really wanted some of that that Skeletor meanness from the cartoon. Skeletor is uh, went to the uh, management school of negative reinforcement in the cartoon. Boob, you morons! You're the dumbest henchman I've ever. You know, he's always he's always laying into everybody and uh, always the first person to run away. Yeah. I, they didn't do that, but but Skeletor's pretty harsh on the Sorod guy. He disintegrates the guy. And uh, they're like, give us another chance. The, the, the remaining henchmen are like, give us another chance. But I don't know why Skeletor did that, really, because they've been outnumbered once. You wouldn't want to dwindle their numbers, I don't think. You wouldn't want to further put them at a disadvantage by taking away one of their members. But but they don't get a replacement. Uh, well, I guess they do, actually, because Tila actually steps up and is like, you know, we don't need to be this hard on them, Skeletor. And then he's like, well, then you go get me the key. Yeah. And she's like, well, I didn't mean. And then he's like, then you shouldn't have spoken. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so there's a limit to his warmth and loyalty. And so he sends her back to Earth to get the cosmic key. That leads to kind of a fun scene where she goes back to the area where they lost the battle. And she does this little projector that kind of shows what happened in the past, right? Right. And she's like, oh, outnumbered, eh? <laughs> it looks yeah. like just one person was was here. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, anyway, so that's sort of funny. Never quite rises to the level of actual verbal laugh, you know. Or good. But or good. As close as this movie comes. I mean, that was that was that was good. That was fine. I guess everybody kind of comes together at the music store. He-Man and the crew come to to get the cosmic key. Lubbock uh, shows up at the store. Kevin shows up at the store. Lubbock is immediately alarmed by the characters that he sees. Yeah. He-Man people. Um, does he call them hippies? I can't remember what he calls them. Yeah, I mean, he's he's dismissive of them right away. Uh, and, and wants to take charge of the situation, but is not able to. Nope. He's uh, he's disarmed very quickly by Tila, I think. Yeah. And then there's some really funny scenes where they're like, Lubbock, don't you get it, Kevin? It's Kevin and Julie who have this uh, dialogue with him later on where, this is for real. <laughs> um <laughs> So as as they realize that they're about to get like caught in the music store, they they send the civilians into the back room and then they have a little battle, right, with uh, Skeletor's uh, stormtroopers. Yes. This is not very well done either. There's a lot of a lot more bad editing. Yeah. A lot of weird gymnastic moves by Tila. She always shoots her pistol with her arms bent on the gun, like pretty much like right in yeah. front of her. You know, right. It's just like it's it's a weird. She holds it in a weird way, but she is deadly accurate with it. Yeah. It, it's. However, you know, there's this fascination with blaster fights in this movie that really didn't have much to do with Masters of the Universe. No. And there were there were blasters and there were there were projectile weapons. Yes, in, there in were. He-Man. And but one of the things He-Man used to do was he would use the power sword to block the blasters, you know. Right. Um, and he didn't use blasters. Well, I mean, the figure had a battle axe, a sword, and a shield. That's right. Yeah. And 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 this is pretty much what he had in the cartoon, though he mostly only right. had the, the, the power sword. Sure. Yeah. But like a He-Man thing to have done in that moment would have been to rip up the floor and roll all the, the, the stormtroopers up into it, right? Isn't it interesting that they don't, I mean, I mean, even though, as you, you pointed out, Dolph Lundgren's physique and how visually he's a very good He-Man, they never really take advantage of that. 
he never seems to be anything more than just a pretty strong guy. Well, absolutely. You and I used to read a lot of the Marvel Universe, and they would have these different classifications of the strength level. Dolph Lundgren is just super athlete in this film. Yeah. He's not He-Man who can lift up boulders and, you know, smash through walls with his bare hands. I mean, like, the He-Man in the cartoon and in the little mini-comics would have been able to destroy all those people with his bare hands. Right. And you're right, they never, ever lean in on his strength at all. Well, I mean, and, and in fact, except for being the leader yeah. of, uh, you know, he's kind of the hero. He's kind of in charge between Man-at-Arms and Tila. But really, I mean, except for Dolph Lundgren's physique, he's not any more capable than either of them. I think Tila destroys more of those robot uh, stormtroopers than either her dad or... Uh, Tia shoots more of them. She has a she has another moment where they they were trying to impose some comedy into the show. She she shoots a bunch of the guys and she uh, the bad guys and she drops down between He Man and Man at Arms. Man at Arms is her father in the in the cartoon and in the old comics. But uh, I don't know if they, they didn't ever mention that in the movie. But she drops down and she says Woman at Arms. All right, I forgot. Um, and that did provide a little chuckle. She did. I thought the actress did an okay line uh, delivering that. So they're having a hell of a battle. Eventually, Lubbock gets out. And and kind of joins them in the battle, doesn't he? Like, oh shit! He has a, he has a reaction. It's World War Three going on out there. Yeah, yeah. Dirt while this is all happening, the yeah. important thing that happens is Evil Lynn hatches her scheme. Yes. On uh, Julie by imitating her mother. Yes. And you know this scene was done pretty well. It was. Uh, 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 the actress that plays Julie's mother, which is really supposed to be Evil Lynn. Well, I don't know if I want to say it was done pretty well. It worked for me. Yeah. yeah. She was very manipulative. Where she, um, because uh, so what happens is is Evil Lynn um, takes the form of Julie's mother who died in a plane accident, which one of the great psychological issues that Julie deals with is the fact that her that they were she and her family were supposed to go to the beach. But since Julie didn't want to go to the beach, her parents were going to go flying instead um, because they had some kind of meeting or something and the plane went down and they died in a, in a plane accident. So she she carries all this guilt with her. And, and apparently that has had taken its toll on her relationship with Kevin on the you know her desire to even stay in this town her mother appears in the alleyway and she thinks that you know her mother's returned and so she goes out to her and brings the cosmic key to basically evil lynn well evil lynn says something like we need you need to give us the key we can help or something like that she she couches it in a way that appeals to julie in this moment yes and and actually i mean it's done well. Yeah. She's very nurturing and, and, and comforting. And then suddenly she she gets the evil grin and and does the reveal of, of what Julie has just done and then becomes evil Lynn. And it's one of the really kind of genuine bad guy moments in the movie, which really it's the bad guy moments that work the most in this movie anyway. Meg Foster does this very well, as does the actress that plays Julie's mom. Yeah, in that moment playing evil Lynn. Um, yeah. Well, that's something too that they never really touch on. Like in the in the cartoon, Evil Lynn and Skeletor are just crackerjack sorcerers. They yeah. are. They're great at magic, you know. But this is the only moment where we really get that from them. Yeah. But it is a good scene. So then Julia's horrified. Well, she has just she has just screwed everybody. <laughs> she has. She has indeed. Her friends have 
eventually catch on that something's wrong and they try and get to her but the the door was magically sealed right up until evil lynn gets the key then the door yeah. opens and she fades away and then everybody else comes in and is like oh my god what happened and then julia's like i fucked everything up and she doesn't say that but 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 uh <laughs> she's like uh evil lynn took the key and then they have a little chase through the town uh none of, this is some pretty bad effects that we're about to see yes yes uh, more blaster fire but now yeah. uh, i want to point something out though too you were just describing julia's emotional trauma this time around when i was watching this and when she was recounting her emotional trauma do you know what i was thinking of mm. the scene in gremlins one and gremlins two where yeah. where the hero the hero the the girlfriend uh of uh i can't remember the, the hero's billy name peltzer. Huh? billy peltzer Bill Peltzer, uh, she has these traumatic memories that she talks about. And in the second film, it is done for a gag, but... Which is funny. In this, in the first film, it's, you know, she does have this trauma that she has to talk about in, in the movie. But I was reminded of that. Like, are they, I was I'm wondering, because they, they've stolen from so many other things in this film. I was like, are they stealing from Gremlins too? Are they, are they doing that? Yeah. So then they go on a chase to get the cosmic key back. And He-Man ends up on the hoverboard, on this hoverboard. These robots fly around on, on these really badly animated hoverboards. I don't need to go into any of the things that really happen in this scene. He gets the cosmic key back, right? Right. And <laughs> this is the only moment where Meg Foster kind of disappoints me. All right. When when he uses the bad grappling hook effect to steal back the cosmic key, Meg Foster gives an, a William Shatner esque no, and it's pretty funny. And uh, I actually rewound that like twice to watch it. Well, you know, and it's funny. You, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, that so already the cosmic key has changed hands three times in just the last couple minutes we've been talking. Yeah, a really good film. Like, okay, if this was a Marvel film, if this was something that was done today, or actually even something done back then with a bit a bigger budget, there would have been this great action slash comedy scene where the cosmic key changed hands four or five times. Yeah. The action would have been really fast and, you know, somebody would drop it and somebody would pick it up and then it would go back to the, and it, it would be, it would be thrilling. It would be exciting. It would be funny. And uh, in, except for her reaction that you just pointed out, I don't think any of this really has any punch to it. No, nothing at all. Well, I mean, to just to just to get everybody to Google uh, uh, anything goes scene in uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yeah, Google that, and that's the kind of scene we should have gotten. Something like that. But that's of course a closer one room adventure, but but it is that kind of comedy of changing hands and of frantic everything happening. But yeah. this is really slow. Like a lot of the action in this movie is. It's very slow. The fight where He-Man he saves Julia. I, I was noticing that the sword play is really, it's not that anybody does anything wrong necessarily, but the actions are so slow that you're just yeah. like, oh, this is just kind of kind of boring, guys, and I don't I don't feel any kind of danger. I agree. I um, agree. So while He-Man is chasing Evil Lynn and her henchmen around, Skeletor is, with no fanfare, I'm surprised that the town didn't freak out because Skeletor brings basically a a, a, a 
giant hovercraft, right? Into yeah. into downtown Plainville, wherever the hell they live. And yeah. I mean, it's not super late at night. You know, the music store was still open. But Skeletor brings an army, a standing army in this hovercraft, this giant hovercraft into downtown. And nobody says anything. It doesn't draw the police. It doesn't uh it doesn't attract any late night walkers to comment, right? There would have yeah. been some funny there would have been some funny reaction shots right there. You could have gotten, right? Oh, but you're Lester would have done that. He Absolutely. Have, um, yeah. You could have had a scene like in the Gremlins where people, you know, not Gremlins, but uh, Goonies, where, you know, people would react to the, where people reacted to the uh, chase through town, right? Look, look, and Lost opportunity. That's a very good point. Look, this this is a very poorly directed movie. It's directed with very little imagination. Uh, I mean, it's got a low budget, but most of the work that's done in this movie it, it is merely attempts to try to be technically good. Yep. You know, there's nothing in terms of character there's nothing in terms of just little moments that kind of make a scene really really work there's really none of that and actually um we've actually talked a lot more about gary goddard than i thought we would but when you look at his uh, at his career he really didn't direct anything else well he didn't earn anything else after this movie i'm sorry he he they took his they took him they took his movie making privileges away he man catches up with his friends um at the same time skeletor seems to catch up with his friends and uh, his hovercraft crashes. He drops the cosmic key, and Skeletor says, "Surrender, he man. You've put up a noble this and that. Now stop, and we'll we'll you're, you've been beaten." And uh, and then this is almost a moment of drama. It really approaches drama, where he man tries to fight his way to Skeletor to have his battle, but he gets drugged down by the guys, and uh, or he's starting to get drugged down, and, and and Skeletor just says, "Enough, surrender, or I'll kill all your friends. You may you may beat us all. You're yeah. he man, right?" But I, I will kill all your friends, right? And uh, and He Man's like he throws down his sword. He surrenders. And, and this is a nice moment where Skeletor, where yep. where where you want to take it, you want to say it, you take it away. Well, uh, um, what he ends up doing, he, um, Skeletor makes it very clear he he really is going to follow through by not killing his friends because Skeletor's goal here is to make He Man his slave. Yep. He's got to keep that because. He made it clear earlier, I don't want him to be a martyr. People need to see you know, the conversation with Evil Lynn, that we need to see He-Man kneeling to me. And Skeletor knows that as long as as long as long there's a possibility that Skeletor could still kill these people, He-Man will do whatever he wants. And, um, and he has a nice line, too, that I thought, where, where um, Evil Lynn says, should we kill them? And he's no. like, no, He-Man will keep his word so long as I keep... He's like, right, right. He-Man will keep his word as long as I keep mine. So, you know. Yeah. Which just to back up a little bit, I, it is a great kind of supervillain moment where his uh, uh, when they're on the top of the building and then suddenly the Skeletor float kind of you know floats yeah to view. I I I, I really loved that. I um, yeah. that is that is cool and dramatic in every way that when it sinks it is not. <laughs> Like they should have cut away and we should have just known that, that was going to happen because it doesn't have the same drama because it when it slowly sinks because it shouldn't necessarily have slowly. I, you know, I just thought I thought that Skeletor when when when, the, when that scene opens when Skeletor reveals himself I thought he was being dramatic. Yeah, oh, uh, it, that that looks great. I but thought. but really it turns out that it's just a very slow vehicle. <laughs> you know, but like uh, He Man says, uh, 
He says, well, I'll never kneel. He says something noble, and, and Skeletor's like, yeah, it's very noble, He-Man, very noble. But they leave the broken cosmic key. Yeah. Well, it was damaged very badly, and, and Julie gets shot in the calf, which which actually um, is a very vicious wound. <laughs> it is. It actually is pretty vicious. It's, yeah. It looks a little grotesque, and it's like a poison that's slowly killing her, right? Well, and, and, and this is all okay. Yeah. It's because He-Man is now taken back to Eternia, to Castle Skull, which we still don't see the exterior of again. And um, he's now the slave of Skeletor. And in the meantime, and I'll say it again, our main characters yes, yes. now have to find a way to get to Eternia to save He-Man. So they have to repair the cosmic key. And so that becomes the new the new presenting problem. Yeah. I, I kind of like this though. Like this is yeah. Well, it's it it it, it is the the act. It, this this action. Uh, the third act is the only act that really works in the movie. Yeah. Um, and doesn't just rely on on Frank Langella. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So so they're they're figuring out how to to fix the cosmic key. Wildor discovers that Kevin, you're a song maker. <laughs> is he, yeah, I just I just hear songs. I just hear music and I and I can play it. Not 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 well, I, you know, I've been playing since I was five. And so that's like he, he presents it like it's some kind of intuitive thing that he's got, but you know, I mean he's he's a fairly we get the sense that he's a fairly accomplished musician. He plays all the time. He's a keyboardist. He's an 80s, he's an 80s character, so he plays synthesizer. Exactly. And so he's got a he just well, you know, I I played I played piano since I was, you know, five. So I I, I know the notes. Anyway, and besides I heard them in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. <laughs> and so they do this kind of thing where they pick everything up and uh, they pick the stuff, the, the electronic equipment that they need to, to fix it, to fix the cosmic key. That's when Detective Principal finds them because he sees their pink Cadillac. Yeah, and, and that's and that's where they should have said, oh, we're conducting a weather experiment. <laughs> Like Doc Brown did Back to the Future. Might as well have. That's that's right. That's right. He, Lubbock puts up a little bit of a of a fight with them. He's going to haul them all in, and I don't remember exactly what happens because it's not super important. But at some point, Kevin gets the beep 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 beep. Yeah, and uh, and then it opens up the portal, and this time the portal acts a little bit more like the teleportation device in the in the Terminator. In that yes. It, Yes. In that it takes everything in, so it creates a sphere around all of them, and it takes everything in the sphere. It takes half the pink Cadillac. It takes the wall yeah. uh, of the of the of the little park area that they're in. Um, and that was pretty. That was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. And uh, and I kind of I love Lovick's reaction when uh, they appear in Grace. They they appear in the Castle Grace School. Prior to this, though, let me let me back up. Skeletor is having He-Man whipped and beaten because he wants to show everybody on Eternia He-Man Neo and uh, and and Frank Langella has some great lines as He-Man's being whipped by Blade and with a, uh, with a non-great uh, effect. It is not a great effect. Like I don't know why they just didn't like use a regular whip, right? Yeah, because the the laser whip that they use doesn't uh, doesn't doesn't oh. work. <laughs> so. So He-Man's in a bad place and Skeletor has this kind of great line and he's like, tell me, He-Man, is the loneliness of good equal to the loneliness of evil? And he's he's having these like nice little bits of dialogue uh, with himself, really, because He-Man doesn't have much to say because right. he really quickly just said, let, let Frank just mug here. Um, absolutely. And actually, that's something else that should be said. And I can't believe that I'm I'm actually trying to point out another weakness of this movie when there's really weaknesses as far as the eye can see. Uh, it's weaknesses, weaknesses all the way down. But um, He-Man, or uh, Dolph, one of the weaknesses of this film 
one of the key weaknesses is that Dolph Lundgren and Frank Langella do not have chemistry together. That's a problem. There's never a moment where in the film that I really felt like Gene Hackman and Christopher Reeve, you know, this is uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Jeff Bridges. Like, there's never that hero, villain chemistry that is kind of delicious to watch for a movie viewer. And Dolph Lundgren, bless his heart, just does not, he, he's just not up to it. No, um, he doesn't have anything good to say. I'm surprised, I'm surprised that Frank Langella didn't work on something for Dolph to say back that they could have played with, right? In that interview, uh, in that interview, the Vanity Fair interview with uh, Frank Langella, he actually had an interesting conversation long before working on this film. He had, a, he had a conversation with Paul Newman and he said, what do you do when you're on a set and you're not getting good direction, your co-star is not giving you much back? You know, how do you, how do you find your way through that? And he was like, well, and Paul Newman just said, I play the character. You know, you, you have an idea what the character is supposed to do. You have an idea of what their motivations are. You have the lines of the character, right? And so Paul Newman just, you know, when he can't get anything back and there's no way to feed back, he would just lean into doing what he thought the character required, right? Yeah. Now that might make he might be, come off a little flat, but he's doing he's doing everything he can to serve the character, and so that's what that's why Lang Langella he looks like he's opposite some great actor in his scenes, right? He does, but he's not. <laughs> he's not. No. So so you go from Langella just doing it, right? Right. And then it cuts to I'll never give to you, <laughs> and I I don't know if I did that better than Dolph did. You did. And uh, but but Dolph knows this. I mean I, I mean I mentioned oh. at the beginning of this that. He felt this was his worst film and, and he's not good in it at all. Uh, and I feel like that the film even knows that because as we've kind of pointed out as, we, as we've gone along, the only reason that we see He-Man as an important character is because Skeletor keeps telling us that. <laughs> That's right. Right? That's right. And so Skeletor is also all playing for time. This is a part of the plot we haven't mentioned because the movie doesn't mention it very much. The, the worlds are going to align or something and he'll get all of... Which is from the Dark Crystal. Okay, okay. Well, it had the same writer, and he'll get all of Sorceress's powers, and he'll be privy to all of the secrets of Grayskull, and basically get knowledge of the entire universe. And golden armor. And golden armor. That's probably from something that we haven't we haven't hit upon yet. Um, but into this mix, the good guys show up. He Man's saviors, right? The 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 main characters of the movie, a keyboard player and a girl who has no combat experience, but there but and she's not even in the fight because she's poisoned and dying. So may I may I make a suggestion? <laughs> By all means. Even though I've I've kind of praised the third act here, uh, because I kind of had fun with it, but in the back of my mind it did occur to me, okay, they all just came to rescue He-Man. What has changed since Earth? The numbers are the same. <laughs> Skeletor might have more troops because now we're back on Eternia. He now is, Skeletor is more powerful than he was when he was on the flotation device. Why does the arrival of our friends make any difference in the outcome of what happens? No, it, it shouldn't, not logically. Well, I mean, if it does make a difference, then it should have made a difference on Earth. Yes. It, it's the same number against the same number, only, as I said, Skeletor's more powerful, and there might be even more Spaceballs troops there. It's true. So, like, I kind of had fun with it, and it kind of worked for me that they show up and save the day, but it makes no goddamn sense at all. Well, what you're forgetting, Jason, is nobody takes pot shots at Lubbock. <laughs> 
So somebody takes a pot shot at Lubbock, actually, and they miss, and he racks his shotgun uh, and uh, wreaks havoc on the Spaceballs troops. He he does overcome his bewilderment pretty quick. You know, people shoot oh, at you. Oh, he, he, he converts completely in just a five-minute span. <laughs> that's right, that's right. But I guess people shooting at you will have that effect. Um, He-Man somehow breaks loose from his bonds. How did he do that? Do you remember? Does he just rip them? I think he just rips them free, right? Yeah, the most He-Man thing that he does in the whole the whole film. He he, he handles Blade very easily. Skeletor has since transformed into golden Skeletor, right? Yes. And this is actually my favorite scene in the movie when he does transform, when he's, Langella is just luxuriating, Skeletor is luxuriating in his new power. He's like, I see everything. I am the alpha, the omega, you know? And yeah. and he's he's great in this scene. Like I get, I feel like I am watching a man transform into a potent cosmic force. And this is very much, this is the only thing that is very much in the mythology of the early Masters of the Universe stuff. Because Skeletor is obsessed because the secrets of the universe exist within Castle Grayskull. And in this movie, we get to see, we get to see him finally get it. And yeah. That, that's pretty cool. It is. And I, I, and I think that, I think that the armor looks cool. I think he actually looks really cool when he becomes golden. I agree. And, uh, he-Man makes his way through henchmen. His people are fighting. He-Man's people are fighting Skeletor's minions. And his sword is up there. It's, it's right by Skeletor. And Skeletor's like, no! And, and He-Man grabs it. And he's being shocked. And this is actually one of the few moments where I thought that Dolph Lundgren sold heroic He-Man. Yeah. He, he, you can see him, like, gutting through the electro electricity, rips up the sword, and he finally says, I have the power. Pointlessly. And maybe he meant, like, I'm being shocked. Oh, my God. Well... No, you're right, pointlessly. You're absolutely right that um, right that that's a good scene. But the problem with it is, is that until that moment, there was never any setup for it. Why did he say it? Setup that He-Man was anything more than a pretty capable guy with muscles. And why didn't he? I have the power. Look, well, like that's good. That's well done. It's not set up. And nothing happens. Say it again. Pardon? Say it again. It's not. It's not earned. That that moment. That is a good moment. It's not earned. And and one of the reasons why it falls flat upon well even in the first viewing but in repeated viewings it falls flat because nothing happens after he gets the power he doesn't get anything that equalizes him to this new cosmic force right 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 um skeletor is uh, ur man right he is he i mean he's the alpha and the omega he just told us yeah and uh and, he, and Skeletor's, for the first time in Skeletor's life in the cartoon, it would have been, if, if this had happened in the cartoon, this would have been the first time in Skeletor's life where he wasn't scared of He-Man, right? But, yeah. Yeah. but, but Frank Langella pours it on and he has a kind of a, a kind of a fun uh, battle with He-Man uh, that reminded me, this whole scene, by the way, this whole fight, final fight in Castle Grayskull reminded me a little bit of Flash Gordon to uh, the, uh, when, I don't know when that movie was made, but- 1980. 1980. Um, anyway, it reminded me a little of that without the Queen soundtrack. Um, but uh, because the, the lighting is very weird in the final battle, it also reminded me a little bit of Highlander. Um, but for some reason, when they're fighting, uh, He-Man knocks Skeletor's ram, ram staff down and he breaks it. And that turns Skeletor blue again. See, and that's that's all good. That's actually, that's a good climax. It is. It's a good He-Man climax. The problem is, is that for viewers of the film, now fans know this, but for viewers of the film, He-Man's... 
He-Man's ability to overcome this cosmic power are not set up at all. Now, if you know the Masters of the Universe kind of mythology, He-Man really is kind of a man among men, and he has this amazing power, uh, and he's almost destined, you know, in kind of this Luke Skywalker kind of way to defend Castle Grayskull to the death. This film does not establish that at all. No. And it's almost like in this movie, in this scene that you're describing, which is not a bad scene, it is a good scene, but it's not set up at all it's almost like it's like oh, yeah, okay he-man fans here's the he-man that you have seen in these cartoons that you you know that you've seen read about in these comic books here he is it's done well but it's not set up in the slightest no so skeletor reverts back to his form and 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 this is also kind of true to the to the to the movie he-man's not a vindictive guy he he's gonna skeletor's going to jail but he's like give up skeletor you beat you know he doesn't want to kill him doesn't want to you know do anything Thing more than what justice requires and then we have definitely a, a true skeletor moment that's right he man it is over and he's he's getting his dagger ready to <laughs> to, to try and to try and kill he-man while he-man's being merciful and it backfires and then he-man ends up throwing him into this this bottomless pit almost it looks like he throws skeletor down the this long shaft that exists in gray school for i don't know why like a like there's when I noticed this, I was like, why are there no guardrails? I didn't realize like there are all these catwalks that people walk along, right? You know, right. pathways. But I didn't realize that it was all over a bottomless pit. So right. why not have guardrails, sorceress? <laughs> um, Eternia's OSHA is not diligent, I guess. But no, no, no. So, so the emperor falls uh, into the reactor of the Death Star. Which is the scene that this is aping, right? Um, yeah. And then that's it. Uh, the heroes win the day. They they heal Julia. But oh, I'm not yeah. I'm not finished. But go ahead, you take it over. Oh well, I mean, actually, um, the that yeah, they heal Julia. Principal Strickland decides that he will remain in Eternia because he's got a squeeze now, and he's uh, Jason. Jason, could you explain? for our younger viewers what a squeeze is uh he, he apparently now has a, a girl that is his his uh his companion and because he we find him sitting on a kind of a kind of a smaller throne just next to the throne of Eternia and he's got a girl right next to him and he's like well you know I've I've got a girl now and why would I go back to earth indeed well, I mean, he really, he makes a dramatic turn, you know, yes. and he decides to start uh, uh, opening up with his shotgun. He goes from, I hate, you know, I'm going to go after all these people and put them all behind bars to, I think I'm going to stay here. Now, yeah. just a real quick note, Lubbock lands in this war zone. There's no guarantee that he's with the good guys. It's okay. I mean, you just shoot at the people who are shooting at you, I guess, right? Right. But like. What if what if Lubbock were to find out later on that he was actually with the villains? <laughs> you know? I just think that that's kind of an interesting idea. Well, that could have been the sequel. They say goodbye to Julie and Kevin, and uh, and they Gwildor sit back Earth. Gwildor says before they leave, though. Gwildor says, "I can send you back any anywhere, anytime." And this is where you know we've spent this entire review talking about how this film ripped off other movies, but now. We need to give this movie some credit. Okay. Because actually this movie should have been mentioned in Avengers Endgame. Okay. Because I, when it comes to, to time, I mean, well, really it, it kind of rips off Back to the Future. But um, this movie, um, the characters intentionally go back to a time where they can change the past and have the life that they want, which is not done in Back to the Future. 
uh, in Back to the Future, Marty McFly just wants to get home, and he comes home and is shocked to find that the world that he would have wanted is actually what he now has. But in this movie, they plan, because they're told that they can, they go back to the time, uh, to the day when Julie's parents uh, are going to go flying, and she insists to them that she wants to go to the beach instead. And so Julie gets to keep her parents. She and Kevin are going to live happily ever after. And we kind of get our happy ending on Earth. Yeah, yeah, on Earth. Which which backs up my 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 thesis that Julie and Kevin are the main characters of this movie. Once they come back, Eternia is gone. Eternia was a vehicle to get to this important story about Julie and Kevin. (laughs) And and resolve the troubles in their life. So credits roll. Yes. Uh, we get an after credit scene. Do. And in it, we're at the bottom of the pit. This seems to be full of water. And the cowless head of Skeletor pops up and he says, go ahead. What does he say? I'll be back. Okay. And sadly, Frank Langella's Skeletor will never be back. They did intend to make a sequel. They did. Apparently, it would have had a lower budget than this film. <laughs> They they had a different He-Man cast. It never got off the ground. But but I guess really that's not surprising because 1987 seems to have been the most you know ambitious year for the Canon Group because you pointed out that they had found a niche before this time that really worked for them. And in 1987, they really tried to spread their wings because they did Superman 4 and Masters of the Universe in the same year. And both of them absolutely uh, fell hurtling to the earth in flames. And yes. much like a much like a boy from Krypton did. <laughs> right. And, and basically destroyed the company. Well, they also had another big science fiction film that year called Life Force, or it might have been in 86, uh, which was kind of a Patrick Stewart vehicle that also joined its fiery brothers. And uh, it was a bad, it was a bad time. It was the dark times. Yeah, I mean, you kind of get the sense that they really, they thought that they could take these, um, these franchises that really required money and they thought that they could bring their kind their touch to it and it just didn't work the company lingers on until the early 90s and then i think they had to sell and break up but yeah 87 was the beginning of the end i think for them now there were attempts to revive he-man by the way there was uh there's gonna be a there's gonna be a movie and i can't remember who's gonna pick it up uh for the for the big screen that fell apart mcg was gonna do uh the guy who did babysitter and the terminator salvation and yeah. two other films the character that the director's name is mcg which I, I hate saying that by the way i hate saying yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, but anyway uh he's not a terrible director but he was gonna do a netflix live action movie that didn't that seems to have fallen apart then she-ra happened the netflix show she-ra which is a great show i recommend everybody watch it now though this i don't know when they're gonna when it's gonna come out but kevin smith is doing he-man really kevin smith is doing an animated he-man show for netflix i'm really excited about it but it's gonna pick up where the animated show left off and uh, let me see if i can pull up the cast real quick it's gonna be prince adam or yes stuff um let's see if i can uh uh, but it's it's gonna have an update of of the animation style, but it's gonna lean really heavily into those those designs, those original designs. But it's got Lena Headley as Evil Lynn, Chris Wood, who's an actor I don't know, as Prince Adam, He Man, Sarah Michelle Geller will be Tila, Liam oh. Cunningham, 
an actor I don't know uh, is Man in Arms. Stephen Root is as Cringer. Okay. Uh, Diedrich Bader is King Randor and Trapjaw. Griffin Newman is Orko. Uh, some other actor, Henry Rollins, the punk singer, will be Triclops. Okay. <laughs> Alicia Silverstone is going to be Queen Marlena. Okay. And who do you think is going to be playing Skeletor, Jason? Clangella. That would be great. I wish they could have done it, but no, it's Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill's playing Skeletor. Oh, that sounds like a good choice, though. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that, but uh, but yeah, they never. I, I think they. I would have liked them to have gotten Frank Langella. Actually, well, he's still around. I mean, well, I don't get it. That's somebody I would have tapped if they, if they couldn't get the original voice actor. I mean, I think probably Kevin Smith wants a, a a much more robust actor than the guy who used to do the voice in the in the '80s cartoon. Uh, he's still alive. He is. Oh no, he is. He's very old. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that's the news on that, the new news. Should we get to the verdict? Yeah. I'll lead, if that's okay. Please. He-Man, I'm sorry, Masters of the Universe, objectively a terrible movie. It's got a terrible script. It's a terrible adaptation uh, with only one really standout great performance and a couple of bright moments for other actors later on. Frank Langella, is, his performance is so good in this film, I think it's worth seeing for that. But don't come at me when you realize the rest of the movie's bad. I love this movie. I, I really do enjoy it. Every time I watch it, I, and, I, and I, I really appreciate how uh, it's fun for me, how bad it is. But I mean, objectively, I, I can't recommend it. But I have a lot of fun with it every time I watch it. So take that for what it is and what you will, I guess. I don't, I, I'm, I think I'm being honest about the film. Terrible, but I love it. I can, I can definitely see that. I, I also had fun with it. I really cannot recommend it though, um, unless you're just really wanting to see a really bad movie that's that's just fun or funny to watch. And, and I, the reason I say that, I, I agree with you. Frank Langella is really fantastic. No one else is really that good in the film. Most of the elements of the film are just really, really, really poorly done. And really, I think even fans of Masters of the Universe, uh, you know, the He-Man toy, would find would probably be very disappointed uh, if they've never seen this film and they were checking it out for the first time. Uh, I did have fun with it, but this is a really, really terrible movie. And I would suggest, unless you have specific reasons to watch it, probably you should stay away. I mean, I, I'll add the one thing. Everything Jason said is true, but I have to I have to lay my cards on the table. I love the movie. Stand by. All right. Uh, Jason, what are we doing next on the next episode? Our next episode, we will be uh, uh, departing the, the territory of delightfully bad films to a higher tier of cinema. Uh, in fact, to the highest tier, one of the great westerns of all time, John Ford's Stagecoach. I can't wait. I've actually never seen Stagecoach, I don't think. So I'm looking forward to this. It'll be a new film for me. I do like John Ford a lot. So that's it for this show, guys. Uh, share us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, wherever the, wherever it is you share things. Share us with your friends. You can even text us to your friends. Find the link. Send it to your friends. You can reach us at lordmovies39 at gmail.com. Anyway, hope you enjoyed the show. Bye-bye.